All right, we're back here. We're at Credit Suisse's Hidden Gems Conference. We had a great opening panel this morning. We had Shinshu of CC Capital, and we had Hope Tates of ELY Capital. We talked about really the main theme of the day is we have a lot of great companies here, and they're doing lots of investor meetings, and it's really about how to find hidden value in a volatile market period. I mean, this is something that we've been talking about on Market Call. Just really quickly, you want to see what you're doing right here. This is Guy Dami. I'm Dan Nathan. We do Market Call. That's MKT Call. We do it every Monday through Thursday at one o'clock live. It streams on your favorite little streaming thingy majiggy. On Thursdays, Liz Young, she is the head market strategist at SoFi. She joins Guy and me. We're very fortunate. We have some great sponsors, FactSet, CME, and SoFi. They sponsor our program, and we are powered by a company called Open Exchange. So that's what we're doing right here. You guys were going to eat lunch. We thought we'd talk a little markets. We had a really smart conversation this morning. Guy and I are going to be a bit less smart. Liz is going to smarten it up, I think, a little bit. But we wanted to hit the theme is really important, right? And so, you know, we've been talking about this. Guys like Guy and me, um, we're not hedge fund managers. We're not your broker. We're not this or that, whatever. We're trying to make sense of what's going on in the markets every day. They would do that on CNBC's Fast Money. Guy's been doing it for 15 years. I've been doing it with him for 11 years. And, you know, we're opining. We're trying to like kind of put some stuff together about what we're seeing every day. Liz does something very different. You have a framework. Obviously, a lot of what you do is qualitative, but it's also quant-based stuff too. And you're talking to somewhat of a different audience when you're not on CNBC. But here today, it's like, all right, man, like, you know, a lot of stocks, a lot of sectors, a lot of things have gone haywire over the last year. They've really been amplified over the last few months where we've seen risk assets of all different sorts go in all different directions. So we're just going to have a conversation a little bit about how we're seeing the macro and where we think maybe some value is to be found in this market. So let's start this way. You know, Guy, you have a lot to say usually on the Fed what do you think some of the most recent stock market volatility has been induced by? The Federal Reserve. Oh, okay. No, and right, so, so I, if you ever watch Fast Money or read the stuff I write, and thanks for having us, by the way. I am no fan of the Federal Reserve, and I've said this, I'll say it here. If there are any Fed officials here, tough shit. Am I allowed to say that? No, but you know, I think amongst the many villains of the 21st century, and they're going to be a lot of them, central bankers are going to be the top of the list. Not that they're bad people. But history is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And you mentioned volatility. You know, prior to our central bank getting so involved in markets and adding liquidity, people bought options as protection. And volatility was at a certain level because people were buying options. And then people started realize, investors and traders, hedge funds realized, wait a second, market never goes down anymore. There's no reason to own protective options. We're just wasting. We're just basically spending money we don't need to spend. That stopped. And then I think somebody woke up one day and said, wait a second, we can actually sell these things and create a synthetic dividend for ourselves. If the markets never go down, there's no risk to that. So whether intentional or not, central bank activity, specifically our Federal Reserve, dampened, tamped down volatility. Now, we've had volatility events, obviously, over the last 12 or 13 years, typically short-lived. But what I will say recently, for the first time in a long time, the volatility index stayed above 30 for longer than a 24-hour period. It was actually there for about, exactly. Thank you. Liz EY from SoFi knows. So maybe we're on to something. Obviously, the VIX has come down, back down to a teenager. I think it's above 22 now. But why is there volatility? Because the Federal Reserve is no longer underwriting this market. Right. So that's this, this kind of near-term sort of thing. And that kind of shifted. If you look and see where the NASDAQ 
topped out, you guys remember, in late November. And that was really around the time where the Fed kind of said, all right, we're going to retire this word of transitory as it relates to inflation. And we're going to go from overly accommodative to tapering the bond purchases that they've been doing under QE. And then obviously going to a rate hiking cycle. Liz, so, you know, Guy gave his long-term view of, of the Fed and, and, and kind of what they have induced. But this has really been a near-term thing. I'm curious to see what your th- how has this all culminated here over the last, let's call it three or four months, because you know we had a 15% peak to drop decline in the S&P 500. I think it was about 22% in the NASDAQ here. What do you think that the largest causes for this volatility as it relates to equity markets? Now, obviously, you said liquidity valuation was an issue, supply, right? Like, the, yeah. you know, just in general, of the stuff that came to the market. Just give me your sense of what you think has happened over the last few months. Well, I mean, first of all, I don't think it's a surprise. I don't think any of it was a surprise, right? We came into 2022 kind of ripe for downside shocks, but we already knew what most of those shocks were going to be. The Fed was going to raise rates. Inflation was too high. Then a war broke out. We knew what that shock was. We knew the sectors it was going to affect. I think what turbulence and what market volatility does to us as investors is makes us only think very short term. It takes our viewpoint from what we would usually think of as maybe one to two years and suddenly it's 30 days, right? So how do you how do you act in that environment? How do you actually do stuff in that environment to make money when everything seems like it's going down? I think you have to take advantage of the fact that everybody around you is only thinking on a 30-day time frame and match it up with things like what's the long-term thesis for this particular part of the market, right? So an example of that, the NASDAQ, you mentioned down 22% peak to trough, which is it qualifies as a bear market, right? Typically, a bear market of 15 to 20% in that range is absent a recession, you get a recession with it, and then it goes to like 35, 40% if you look over history, right? So there we were down 22% in the NASDAQ and no recession. That tells me in the short term, we're oversold on the NASDAQ, right? That was time for a bounce and we got a little bounce, but that's how you take advantage of it. The short term isn't matching up with the long term. Another good example on the other side of that is energy. And this might be an unpopular opinion in the room, but think about the run up in energy prices. And the peak that we got to, the most recent peak that we got to, what's the long-term thesis for fossil fuel? Not getting more popular, right? It's getting less popular. Things are getting cleaner. So the long-term thesis is that people don't keep buying fossil fuel. They start buying cleaner energy. So in the short term, that buying was overdone, right? So that's when you start to think about, okay, in this moment right here, it doesn't match up with what I think about this for the next two years. And that's how you make trades. Yeah, that was a theme this morning in the panel, and and both Chin and Hope were very clear on this, is about time horizons and really kind of thinking out one of the skill sets that they've implored during different market cycles is that just not being too much on the here and now. I think really being cognizant of the here and now, that's the thing that a lot of, I don't know, like opportunistic sort of like public market people can take advantage of. They are both in public and private markets. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And really when they were talking about value, there was one thing that, you know, Chin said, is like, I asked him is like, all right, so are we starting to see like really good value right now? Where are we in this cycle? And I think any of us can look at things that we're really interested, whether they be secular themes, individual names, that sort of thing, where, you know, a year ago, you felt really good about the long term about it, but it was that kind of intermediate term sort of thing that kind of collapsed the value. So I'm just curious right now, as we think about there's been some value compression 
And it's largely been in the most high multiple sort of names, but we're still justifying some of the biggest cap names at the valuations they are. When do we know like the valuation thing, it's like safe to go in the water? So, you know, I'm just curious how you think about it, Guy, because you're you would basically say, well, the rate's going higher. Therefore, we got the value compression. Where is it when we get to the interest rate environment where there's some sort of signal that, you know, enough is enough, I guess? It's a tough question. I mean, the interest rate, I say it all the time, and I'm pretty convinced 10-year yields should be the most liquid, unvolatile instrument in the history of mankind. And they're trading over the last year, year and a half, specifically over the last month and a half, two months, like a phase $300 million biotech stock. I mean, 10-year yields a month or so ago were 1.63%. Then now it's north of 2.6%. That's not a healthy bond market. That's a bond market that's broken, in my opinion. So we'll see how it all plays out. In terms to answer your question, when you know it's a capitulatory bottom in terms of some of these names, you say it all the time on our show, Amazon peaked to trough decline 20 so years ago, was down 90%. And I'm sure there were people all along the way down were trying to figure out, you know, what, what is this the right level? So we're close. I don't think we're there yet. I mean, valuations for some of these the great companies, but the valuations were ridiculous, which we talked about over the summer. Market finally picked up on it, and valuations are still stretched. Yeah. And in this audience, you know, we have obviously a bunch of bankers. We also have a lot of corporates. And, and you know, these are the things that none of us can really, we don't have the answers to. And we're trying to figure them out as we go along. But when you think about that sort of volatility, like you say, in some very volatile risk assets, you say it's broken. Just think of like, a stock like Tesla, and I'm not picking on Tesla, but Tesla's rallied 50% in the last like month and a half. And that period where the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield has gained from 1.6 to 2.6, there are some things that are really broken. That's hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap in a straight line that's happened. So Liz, when you see that sort of price action, and again, you know, Guy, you bring us back to 20 years ago, that was a very nasty bear market. If you remember the way stocks topped out in spring of 2000, they kept on going lower in 01, they kept on going low. We haven't had protracted bear markets. And that's one of the things I would just say. So back to your point is like, if you usually have this run of the mill 15% or 20% correction, usually they don't coincide with a recession. Now, all of a sudden, there's lots of recession calls out right. there. So is this just kind of like the tip of the iceberg, possibly, for what we might see? Well, the, all of a sudden, there's these recession calls because the yield curve inverted and everybody was like, oh, my God, do you smell it? I smell it. It's coming. Right. And Okay, sure. At some point, we're never allowed to guarantee things, right? Yeah. I guarantee you at some point there will be a recession. Shortly thereafter, there will be a recovery. That's just how this works, right? So yes, I think there will be a recession at some point. The question is more, what puts us into it? And I think everybody right now would assume it's going to be the Fed that puts us into it or inflation as the issue and the Fed as the problem solver that's going to put us into recession. And then how deep is it? How long is it? How quickly can we come out of it? I actually tend to think we can go into one that's pretty brief and not that painful and come out of it with lower inflation and not have broken the labor market, in which case we don't even know what happened until after it's over, right? You find out that a recession happened about a month later, and then we're out of it and everything's okay. The labor market is the last thing or one of the last things to turn before you go into a recession, right? The labor market right now, as we all know, is is like tight as a string. And we're not going to go into a recession with a labor market that tight. So what that means is you have time. There's no reason right now to pull money out of the market, shove it under the mattress and position yourself for Armageddon because it's not happening tomorrow. Will it happen in 2023? Maybe. But that's something that you look at maybe the second half of the year, make sure that you're ready for that. And 
the recession thing, it gets such a bad name. I think it's healthy. I think it's good for the economy. And I think if the Fed's job works, they'll affect demand. Demand will relax. Inflation will relax with it. And then I think we actually get a little bit of a dovish pivot later in the year. But that's Let me say another I, unpopular. I'm with thing. you, it, you know, there are a lot of four-letter words. Typically, I use them at the house. I won't use any here. But recession is not one of them. I mean, recession is a natural, important part of the business cycle, without question. I use this analogy all the time. Peshtigo, Wisconsin. You're from like Wisconsin. Peshtigo. Never heard of it. Uh, yeah, you have. Because in, eight, in October, I think, of 1872, the same day the Great Chicago Fire, there was a fire in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, killed more people in the history of forest fires in this country. To this day, the most deadly fire ever in the United States. From that fire, the National Forestry Service was born. Why? Because fires are destructive. They kill people unsightly. If we can somehow sequester fires, we're going to be a better for it. And they're able to do that for a period of time. But what they learned the hard way is fires, forest fires, as unsightly, deadly, destructive as they are, are a natural part of the cycle. Old trees burn down, new trees grow, has to happen. I think Greenspan thought, wait a second, we can alchemy out the recession part of the business cycle and we'll be better for it. He was right. They were able to do it, but he was wrong. We're not better for it. And downturns, which would have been bad, they wound up learning the hard way or 10 times worse. And I get the funny feeling that's what this Federal Reserve is trying to fight, combat against right now. I just think they're about three and a half years too late. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. And Liz, you kind of just hinted at it. Right now, when you think about it, if you think the Fed is a bit of a political entity, which for all intents and purposes, the Fed chair is obviously nominated by a president. And, and so we have a midterm cycle here. I think at some point, the powers that be in the White House decided that inflation was going to be the most important factor on the ballot this year. And so they had to fight this sort of thing. And I'm sure Jerome Powell, is smart enough to figure that out himself here. And I think to your point, though, that if they hit this QT hard, right, they get rates high enough, they get that yield curve steepening a bit at some point after we've had this sort of period, then they have the opportunity maybe in the fall to start talking a bit more dovishly. And, and if you can kind of, I mean, guy's going to say there's not a chance in hell they land that plane, okay, because you think they've kind of lost control. And I think if you look at what's going on in the markets, the volatility you're seeing in yields and, and all these other risk assets and currency, things look like they've gone a bit haywire. So just kind of speak to the ability of what could happen in the balance of this year, in your opinion, okay, given, listen, inflation is, it's just not going to get much. These are probably the highest prints we're going to see in CPI, right? We, we had 8% last year, we, or month, we might have 9%. I don't know. Do we get to a 10% and that's it? I don't know. Did, give, give, me, give me a sense for that guy. Well, I'll give you a quick, I think you're going to have a nine handle in the next CPI reading. I mean, maybe the market expects that, maybe it doesn't. What could happen well, you're talking about a, a steepening yield curve. I don't know how that happens, because as much as the Fed thinks they control the yield curve, they don't. They can control the front end to a certain extent. But 10-year yields, I mean, you see what's happening right before our eyes, 5s, 30s inverted, 5s, 10s. It's happening all across the curve. And if you do have a slowdown, yields in the back end are not going to go up. They're going to go down. The front end will continue to go higher. And if you have a market sell-off that I think we may be on the precipice of, you'll see a flight to quality in the form of 10-year yields, which will further drive down bond yields. So the whole thing is backwards right now. And to your point about threading this needle, there's no shot in hell they're able to thread this needle. All right. So, so Liz, you just said you don't, you think you have some time. So investors, yeah. 
you know, whether they be companies thinking about their stock price, whether they be bankers helping them think about like how to deploy capital or raise capital, whatever the heck it is. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, like risk happens kind of all at once, right? When you think about that. And so, you know, we've had large parts of the stock market that have been cut in half and, and kind of worse, but there's a part of the stock market and we all know what it is. It's just kind of keeping the broad indices kind of levitating here. So when you look at the just devastation that some people may have in their portfolio, some of mine too, you know, you say to yourself, how can it be that the S&P is only down 5%? How can it be that the NASDAQ is only down 11%? So I just want to get your sense because if we do have, if the Fed does what they're supposed to do, tamping down inflation, they're going to slow growth. And then some of these names that or these stocks that are driving the performance, at some point, they're going to see slower demand and there will be value, uh, you know, like some yeah. value compression there. So I'm curious how you think about that. So uh, first, back to the, I don't know if we're talking about threading needles or landing planes, yeah. but we'll, we'll use them. Imagine the if you plane. had to do both at the same time. <laughs> Don't try to thread a needle when the plane is landing. I think there's a narrow landing strip. It's very narrow and it's windy outside. It's going to be tough, but I think it's possible. And what could happen, I actually looked at this yesterday. We got the announcement of the minutes yesterday from the Fed and they talked about balance sheet runoff. That was really the only possibility where they could have steepened the yield curve, right? If they were going to say, we're going to run off the balance sheet or engage in outright sales from the belly of the curve to the 10 year, they could have steepened it that way. And that's not what happened. They said, we're gonna run off everything above one year. And actually we did the breakdown too. Only 15% of their balance sheet is between five and 10 years. So they're not gonna steepen it, that's fair. I actually think, and we could talk about this later maybe, I actually think that creates an opportunity in bonds right now, which sounds very boring, but we've seen such a big sell-off in bonds. Bonds are down almost 9%. The seven to 10 year treasury ETF is down almost 9%. And the S&P is only down five. So there was a bigger sell-off in bonds in this period than there was in stocks. Like that doesn't make sense, right? So you start to see opportunity mismatches there. As far as, you know, what can they do going forward? How is this all going to play out? I think if you look later in the year, yes, it'll affect demand, but it's really all about where are we in the cycle? And nobody ever knows that. Nobody has a barometer that says, okay, you know, it's moved from green to yellow to red. But I think we can all agree that some of the cyclical signals that we look at for where we are in the cycle, some of the things that happen in the market, some of the things that we're talking about in the macro environment say that we're getting closer to late cycle, right? So then think about what happens in the late cycle. Demand does slow. It should slow. You're going to hear things like small cap companies delaying spending because they're not sure yet. Yes, demand will come down, but the economy doesn't come to a full stop. It's just that the leadership in the market changes. So we've had big tech kind of holding us up as our life raft. You get to later in the year, and, and right now already defensives are doing pretty good, but you see other sectors come in and do their part, right? Make their contribution to returns. I think tech, because of big tech, can do okay this year, but it won't be the big winner. The leadership, the leadership makeup has changed. Yeah, I mean, right now though they are leading. I mean, they well, are. Okay, so you know. the, so there's been there's been the big bounce off the bottom. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot about that part yeah. of the question. The big bounce off of the Nasdaq down twenty two percent. I think the bounce was overdone. I think that was a big sigh of relief, like oh my god, we got the first hike behind us, and then there's been a little bit of correction since then. But people are going to realize, okay, we've got this big time period between that hike and May sixth is the next meeting. If they do fifty in May and they do another fifty in June. 
I think tech investors are going to say, whoa, okay, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe this is a little much. Well, we're, we're, and we're seeing that right now. I mean, I, you, we don't have to name any specific names. We saw, you know, stocks that were down 50, 60% from, let's say, a year ago had 50, 60% rallies off of recent lows. So the S&P rallied, you know, 10%. The NASDAQ rallied, you know, 13% or something like that. Some of these stocks rallied 50%. Here's the thing, and this is what I would say, and this is more putting my kind of fast money hat on, keep an eye on those recent lows, right? They're already, you're seeing a lot of stocks already give back at least half of those gains. And again, what are we trying to do? We're trying to game out some of the price action near term. I mean, ultimately, I think if you go back to some of these past bear markets, and I'm not saying we're in a bear market, I mean, one of the things that you saw is that those stocks eventually will stop going down as much as they had with the velocity in which they did. And then you're going to need the large caps to kind of play catch up and then get some sort of capitulation. But let's talk a little bit about like, what are some areas of the market that we think are recession proof? Because one of the things that was kind of proved out during the pandemic is that first everything, you know, correlations went to one, right? Everything went down. And then we're like, oh, well, some of these companies are going to help, uh, you know, create a vaccinated supply chain and, or, you know, recurring revenue models are amazing. Oh, you have, you know, $100 billion in cash. That's usually pretty useful too. Your moats and all that sort of stuff. I think that probably is what's going on right now, why we're seeing this relative outperformance of the mega caps. But are they, Guy, in your opinion, are they the recession-proof names? And it really depends on what you want to pay for them, really, You know, from a valuation standpoint. I think that's the flight to quality names, the flight to safety. Those yeah. are the names that people don't want to be out of the market. They try to find, where can I stay in the market and not get throttled? So I think that's what's going on. By the way, Dan did coin the what do they call that thing when you put letters together? Acronym. Yeah, that thing. MAGA for the MAGA call. <laughs> well, not, not, no, it's oh, true. Different MAGA. But, but this was the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon. Why do I mention it? Yeah, because yeah. six months after you did it, President, then President Trump was sitting with you know little yeah. notepad, and yeah. he actually wrote down MAGA. He's so we stole it from you. Big fan of the show. Which, with that said, <laughs> the place, I mean, if you look at what's going on in healthcare, though, over the last six months, it's no longer... No longer has a bullseye on its back. And some of these big cap pharma names are trading as well as they've traded ever. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to play stock market here, but that to me is where you want to be. Yesterday's stock market felt so like 15 years ago. I looked up, I had a sea of red of 300 names. I saw telco, I saw pharma, I saw some oil names. And, you know, again, I like seeing things I'm familiar with. You know, when you start seeing things that you've never seen before, the sort of magnitude of some... I, some of the moves that we've seen off of the highs, that brings me back to the financial crisis and it brings me back to you know the post.com era. But that also brings me back to, again, this is a theme that we had in the panel this morning with two fabulous investors, patience and thinking out long-term, thinking about secular shifts, thinking about how some companies who are gonna use this downturn or a downturn in the interest in their business or whatever to really position themselves for the next 10 or 15 years. So innovation was a key theme that we talked about. Liz, how do you think about you know, innovation right now, if you are, you know, the sort of company, again, that's helping disintermediate some process or take cost out of something, I'm just curious, are there areas in the market where you don't actually have to think about tech in particular, but, but sectors within the economy or the market that should benefit from innovation? And again, we talked about, you know, this ARC innovation ETF that, you know, people seem obsessed with all of those things. You saw pull forward in demand during the pandemic, but they were really B2C for the most part. There's a lot of really great B2B opportunities, I think, in that regard, too. Yeah, I think healthcare, honestly. It, healthcare is recession-proof. And and the secular shift that happened in the pandemic is it's not that healthcare wasn't important to all of us before. Of course it was. But we all know a lot more about it now. We know a lot more about how our system works or doesn't work. We know a lot more about how the global healthcare system works. 
And it sped up the marriage between healthcare and technology because we needed it faster, we needed it cheaper, we needed it to be scalable. That only continues. And some of it is sticky. So for example, my mom has been a chief nursing officer at a psych hospital for many, many years. And she was telling me they do therapy. She runs all the therapists in the hospital. They started to do virtual therapy. Well, then it became, why would we have to come in for that? You know, then you do teletherapy and that whole theme stays. That's not the only place that that happened. And then think about the biotech industry, the pharma industry, and all of the ways that we're going to need that going forward to just be healthy as individuals. I think healthcare is completely recession-proof and it's a pocket of innovation that we don't talk about as traditional innovation. Yeah, so guy, talk to me on energy, you know, because that's, you just mentioned that like near term, we have the need for fossil fuels. A few mm-hmm. years ago, we didn't think we did. And again, there'll be some sort of push away from them. I mean, there seems to be a lot of innovation in the energy space too, which could actually cause some of these names that were kind of hated and tagged by ESG sort of fun. Mm-hmm. It could actually make them, maybe if you look out far enough, kind of favorable in that regard. It's interesting. And this is just my opinion, but I think we would have had $120 crude oil, even if this Russia-Ukraine situation didn't happen. It would have happened a lot longer down the road, but it was, it was inevitable, in my opinion. It was inevitable because of what you just mentioned. ESG, all these energy names come, came under the auspices of ESG a few years ago. That was strike one. Strike two, then, obviously, COVID hit. Strike three was CapEx went to zero. And you just can't flip that switch. Yeah. And now everything sort of changed immediately. Now, actually, names like ExxonMobil they're an ESG play for the right reasons. I mean, they might be the most ESG compliant company in the world right now. And I think if the energy story is not going away anytime soon, when I say anytime soon, the next six to nine months. So all those companies that were just getting bludgeoned now have tremendous tailwinds. And you have a bit of a blow off top in the commodity and crude a couple of weeks ago, came back rallying again. Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs. I worked at Jay Aaron for a long time. And I'm paraphrasing to a point, but he just said a couple months ago in his 30 year career, he has never seen anything like it in the commodities world. His words, we are running out of everything. So there's some supply demand dynamics that, again, they don't correct themselves. They don't correct themselves in weeks. They don't correct themselves in months. It takes quarters. Yeah. So we talk about uncertainty. And I think, again, I mean, to your point, you thought some of the stuff was bubbling up. It was going to happen. The war in Ukraine just kind of, you know, made it that much more evident. And, you know, we had on the panel this morning, I I made a comment about what could be the lasting effect of this war. Let's say, you know, hopefully it's resolved in a peaceful manner kind of soon is just the realignment of like global powers, you know, like the way that, that, you know, we have our liberal social democracy, you know, that sort of thing, and then everyone else. And that could really kind of put too fine a point on countries that have access to resources and countries that need them. So I'm just curious, like how you think about energy um, going forward and the potential for some realignment. We're spending a lot of time talking about Eastern Europe. You know, China's sitting back, they're sitting back, they're sitting back, they got their 25 year plan. And it'll be really interesting because there's a scenario where China does the wrong thing in our eyes. And then all of this stuff is really exasperated. Yeah, I mean, I I think some of the shifts have already started to happen. We, as the U.S., aren't nearly as dependent on certain parts of the world anymore for energy supply. But the other shifts that are starting to bubble up is that will commodities always be denominated in dollars, right? Now we're getting these threats of you can only buy oil in rubles or whatever it is, right? And I think that continues. So this kind of disruption in the currency space continues, which 
is another reason why everybody's gotten so interested in crypto and the thesis behind crypto. So I think the the denomination of energy is going to continue to change. And I think the groups that kind of rally together to provide energy to the rest of the world will also shift. Maybe there is some sort of partnership between Eastern Europe and Asia that didn't necessarily exist before. Maybe we're out of that. But then you also think about who are the beneficiaries of that if we become completely independent or at least avoid that entirely, the beneficiaries are Canada, right? And then think about Brazil, right? So getting out of that realm. So there is some realignment, especially in emerging markets. Yeah. You mentioned everyone's interested in crypto. Not everyone's mentioned interested in crypto, but you know, it's interesting. On this stage, it was October 5th, 2017, Credit Suisse, they held the first I think it was the first ever like bulge bracket firm crypto conference. And we did our, we did our show from here. We took a bunch of people and it was interesting. Bitcoin had just crossed 5,000 for the first time that day. And when you think about what was the market cap then versus at its highs at 69,000 versus the ecosystem now with it, you know, at 45,000, you know, it really, in many ways, I think, you know, it hasn't gained the sort of stature you would think over that period of time, but if we're talking about innovation, I think it's something that we're kind of close to here too. And I know that the guys that I work with at Credit Suisse are, are really, you know, they, they've kind of had an eye on this for years now. There's a lot of innovation going on in and around crypto. You know, obviously regulatory framework will be really <clears throat> important, but when you think about just kind of some of these layer one protocols and the stuff that's being built on top of it, whether it be DeFi and NFTs and a lot of stuff like that, I'm just curious, Liz, how are you thinking about, you know, this is a big part of the strategy at SoFi, right? You guys are speaking to an audience that have interest in this. So your audience is a little bit. Yeah. So talk, talk, give, give the audience a little bit from a sentiment standpoint, because one thing I will tell you that I am certain of since that day in October, 2017, the smartest people that I know in finance, also in tech, definitely have one foot in the water on it. You know what I mean? I'm just curious what your, what the retail sentiment is. Well, it's funny you bring up that timeframe. I stood on a stage in January of 20. 18. And that was after Bitcoin had, if you all remember, it went up to 20,000 and we were like, what witchcraft, right? $20,000. And then it fell back down and it stayed low. Anyway, I was on a stage when it was in its fall. And I said, if you have money to lose, buy Bitcoin. And at that point it was at, it was probably at $8,000. Now it didn't really move that much until 2020. So if you would have listened to me, and bought it then and then held it for three more years, you'd look like a genius, right? But at the time, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. It took me a long time to come around. Maybe even going to SoFi is what took me to come around. And I'll give you just some stats around it. So I think people think that our platform, our invest platform at SoFi is all crypto. It's not. It's actually less than than even I thought. About 10% of the assets are in crypto. And all of the investing, about 10% of the assets are in crypto. However, 30% of our members with funded accounts have a funded crypto account. So 30% of people are taking part in it, only 10% of their assets. Now, 10% of their assets is reasonable when you think about the fact that 65% of our platform is between the ages of 20 and 40. So we've got that millennial crowd, we've got the young investor, 10% for somebody who's got a 30 to 40 year time frame, probably okay, right? So it's actually not as egregious as you'd, as you'd imagine. I think now that we have institutions on board, now that it's hit critical mass, now that there's, I don't even know how many coins there are out there, 8,000 or something, some ridiculous amount, there's going to be some Darwinism in the industry. Not all those coins are going to survive. 
But the top ones, yeah, I think they're here to stay. And I think you continue to hear more institutions take it on. I, I used to work at BNY Mellon, which I thought was like the oldest, stodgiest, never does anything trailblazing institution in the world. Even they do crypto now. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, this is a new era. Are you talking our friends from Credit Suisse here a little bit? Um, I think BNY So, Guy, we had Michael Saylor, CEO, MicroStrategy. I was told it's a software company. He was on our market call maybe, what, two weeks ago? And you've talked to him a bunch. You and I both talked to him a bunch. They own 190 no, I think it's 129,000. Uh, it's 129,000 Bitcoin on their balance sheet. They've sold equity. They've sold converts. They've sold straight debt. They've actually borrowed against their Bitcoin to buy more Bitcoin. Tell the audience a little bit what you've learned talking to Michael over the last year or so, why he is doing what he is doing. Thinks it's the most important, you know, and again, I'm not suggesting he's right. I just happen to, you know, been known him now for the last few years. And he thinks it's the most transformative technology since electricity, whether that's True or not, we're going to find out. But he will also say, he said it to us, he said it publicly that, you know, if you have cash on your balance sheet, that's a liability, that's not an asset. And I think he's trying to not only educate his employees and his board of directors, but the rest of the corporate world as well. And people are starting to come around to that. I believe that Bitcoin was born out of a fear of central banks run amok, going back to an earlier comment I made. And if you think about the lifespan of crypto, it's basically been when central banks are been extraordinarily accommodative. I don't think it's coincidental, by the way, that Bitcoin topped out around the same time our central bank pivoted-ish, mm -hmm. if you go back and look at the calendar. I will tell you that if for whatever reason this Federal Reserve or central banks blink because markets sell off and they go back to that accommodative stance, that's going to be when crypto, specifically Bitcoin, takes off. So I think Michael Saylor thinks you know what, in a world that's now been dominated by central bankers that have basically taken your currency and cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half over the last century, crypto wins, Bitcoin wins. We'll see if he's right. But I yeah. mean, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Hey, listen, we have a couple mics here. If anyone has a question for Guy, I promise you he'll answer anything. You know? oh, let me tell you something. Yeah, call it AMA. I will answer I'm so anything. I'm just telling you yeah. now, Dan, I'm just putting it out there. I, I, you ask me anything you want, right, but, hopefully but I'm honest no, to a point. I, I, I know. Hopefully, just be careful. Anyway, there's no compliance people in here at the moment. So if you have a question for Guy, please step up. All right. Let's try to be a bit constructive here because, again, like the theme is trying to find some hidden value. And sometimes it's really hard to see when you're looking at the sort of volatility that we see in markets and you have sort of a, like a, a macro view that may not be saying, hey, I want to buy some company that I think is really disruptive and it's being you know, mispriced in the public markets. Let's Let's kind of think about like what's the playbook for the balance of this year. So you know, you know, January and February and early March felt really bad, and it was easy to probably say, "Oh man, this could get a lot worse." Okay, we have rising rates, we have a war that we didn't expect, we have inflationary pressures at their highest levels in forty you know plus years or whatever. How does it settle out in a way that's that's not really bad? How do we settle out where we have an S and P that closes year at five thousand and the Nasdaq is back up near its highs and it's a the breadth in the market is a bit better than it is right. Now, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that, you know, when you have six stocks that make up 25 percent of the weight of the S&P 500 and about 50 percent of the weight of the Nasdaq 100, that's a really tough scenario. Now, you know this because you guys are big Dan Nathan fans. You know, I have a little saying here, you know, what do I do down 20 percent in this market? I'm going Qs and twos. Right. And I'll tell you why, because the QQQ, the Nasdaq 100, you're going to get all of those mega cap names that are driving you know, uh, this outperformance right now, or, you know, holding this up, but you're going to get dozens of stocks that are down 50, 60%. And at some point, 
they're all going to rally again. They're going to find new levels in which the valuations make sense relative to their market opportunity. And then the other thing is, I don't think yields are going much higher really ever again, largely because we have a Federal Reserve that says they're going to you know, take assets off their balance sheet. Good luck with that. They have over $9 trillion. So I don't think they're going to be able to service $9 trillion in debt. So I think that you probably see Treasury yields go down, bond, you know, treasuries go up. And I think the NASDAQ 100 is the only game in town, in my opinion, because of this dispersion between the largest names and these other names, which have been absolutely punished. Guy, what do you got? I think you're right. I mean, Mike Novogratz, I got to interview him in January and U.S. debt to GDP is at like 130 percent or so. And he's, you know, he'll go back in history and say when it gets to levels like that for a developed economy, it typically doesn't end well. So I understand what you're saying. Rates can't go meaningfully higher because of that. We better hope they don't, number one. But in terms of your point about the markets, how do we get to 5,000 at the end of this year? I think by trading anywhere between 37,50 and 4,000 first. You think we got to go yes, down? We got to yeah, get I ugly. Think, personally, I think that would be the healthiest <laughs> thing for this market to continue what's been a historic rise. Quick question, because Liz, you know, you deal with a lot of retail, or at least they're reading your stuff and listening to you. You know, guys made this point on many occasions that that kind of negative wealth effect that could happen from the stock market going down, you know, we could see, you know, housing could be turning to, you know, there's a lot of things that could cause, right, consumer sentiment to go the exact opposite way very quickly. Stock market going down, housing market going down. I'm just curious, do you have a constructive year-end view? And then where do you see the best opportunity, other than healthcare, because we already talked about that, for value, maybe something as it relates to tech? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, the consumer sentiment's already been hit because of inflation. So I think the way that this works out, if you want to paint the optimistic picture, inflation has to relax quickly. And that probably means the Fed has to go after it, as they've telegraphed, hard in May and probably hard again in June. It needs to relax before a couple other things happen. It needs to relax before every company starts passing it through. Because once the companies start passing it through to the consumer, it's permanent. And then inflation is here. And if we hit a slowdown in the economy and the consumer runs out of cash and it starts to hit the labor market, then we're screwed. So inflation needs to come down before all the companies pass it through. We also have to have a point where consumers, maybe we hit a pause button, right? The consumer sentiment index is finicky and I would only take it with a grain of salt, to be honest. But we hit a pause button maybe in capital spending. So we're going to hear from companies in the second quarter, I think, that are pausing their spending, not contracting it, not saying that they're cutting anything, but just going to pause it to wait and see what happens. Let them pause it, but then we need them to restart it for the second half of the year. I think there is actually a good chance for a good second half. And you get a little dovish pivot from the Fed or they say, you know what, we don't have to fight this as much as we thought. Everything's going to be OK. Then you have a rally in those growth names. Yeah. And that's how it ends well. Okay. And the only thing I'd say is 2020, 2021, we had disappointing first half and we we're going to pick it up in the back half. And we didn't, you know, in both instances. So yeah. that might be a story Third of times 2022. Charm. We have a question. Hi, I'm Rachel Berkowitz. I run corporate FX sales here. So my question is, I feel like Okay, Russia, Ukraine, we like sort of saw happening, like people were kind of talking about it. And then it turned into a very real thing very quickly is how it felt. And now I feel like everyone is talking about geopolitical risks sort of more broadly. So my question is like, what's the next one that we sort of see coming but aren't really talking about yet, but probably should be? Because that's the question I've gotten about. If you, if you watch Market Call, which, which she clearly doesn't. She clearly doesn't. <laughs> 
we call him Nostradami, okay? I'm about as old as... I was actually at CS's TMT conference in the desert in, in Phoenix in the first week in December. We did a podcast together. We have a... I'm just going to pl- plug this right here on the tape podcast. We do it with a guy named Danny Moses. Drops every Friday morning. Follow it in your podcast stories, people. But we had Ian Bremmer from Eurasia Group on, and he is a brilliant you know, macro mind. And guy laid out. You laid it out. You said Russia... Ukraine, you said that's happening. And then your next one was what? China, Taiwan. And I thought the Russia, Ukraine would take place after the Olympics. Turns out it took place, I think, three days before it ended. So that proved to be right. And, you know, China, Taiwan, I, you know, I, I don't want it to happen, but I think it's out there. It's clearly going to happen. And what's it? FX, corporate FX sales. I mean, think about how busy you've been over the last year or so. When I started in the business in 86, if a currency moved a percent in two weeks, it was a big deal. Now it happens in an you know hour, hour and a half. It's the volatility in currencies is scary as well. Another conversation. But for me, it's China, Taiwan. Right, well, let's talk about what does that actually mean. So let's just say there's some sort of provocation, okay? And let's say you know, let's say the Chinese are emboldened by what let's say the West did not do right with the invasion of a sovereign nation and. You know, what does it mean? Okay, so is it is it about trade? Is it about deglobalization? Is it is it the sort of thing that maybe causes, you know, a, like our wage, you know, spike spiral that we have just to go haywire a little bit? What are some of the things? Is it further, you know, commodity prices, you know, just kind of ripping here? We're we going to see $20 crude. It's art of war stuff. You know, while we were busy building tanks and battleships and thinking we're still in the 1940s, and that's not how you're going to defeat your opponent. You, you, the way to defeat an opponent now that is superior to you is to cripple their economy. So China has a 50-year view. We have a five-minute so, view So here. sanctions. So how does the U.S. sanction? You know, if you, China? I think, in my opinion, just my opinion, the Chinese are willing to lose the battle to win the, the long-term war economically. You know, if, you're, if your goal is to be the economic power, it makes sense to cripple your biggest opponent. And I think China, Taiwan would do exactly that in some perverse way. Liz, what do you think of the precedent that a lot of U.S. multinationals stopped selling in Russia or, you know, stopped doing business in Russia or sanctioned, you know, all these oligarchs? You know, I mean, that scenario with China, which is you tell me, I don't know how much bigger China's GDP is than, than Russia, but it's substantial. You know, what would that mean to you about U.S. multinationals, also with a surging dollar, a dollar that's, you know, back two levels it hasn't been at since, you know, early 2020. That could be a really bad thing for corporate U.S. corporate earnings. It could be in certain sectors. Yes. I think it's probably good that we started this deglobalization is dead thing back when tariffs were put on. So it's not brand new. I don't think it ever dies completely, but onshoring takes a while. It's expensive and it takes a while. So it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to kill multinationals in two quarters. So it would be a transition. I don't know if everybody remembers the China 2025 report where they outlined how they were going to take over the world by 2025. We're not there yet. I think it's still their plan as far as I know. And to Guy's point, they would do whatever it takes in order to try to position themselves that way. So we may have no choice but to close our walls even further, regardless of who's in office. It's not even a political statement. We may have no choice. Right. All right. Well, listen, I think we're at time here. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, you didn't. Dan was miserable the whole time. (laughs) I I was looking at me the whole time. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I brought this. Why did I do this? I have this great gig with Credit Suisse and you're going to screw it up for me in 45 minutes. 
I talked to him. No. I literally talked to him four hours a day. So this was like an added 45 minutes that I just didn't need today. But no, I, I mean it sincerely. This was our pleasure to come here and talk. I know that you guys were going to be eating lunch and it was a little kind of interlude here. But again, you know, the day, I think it's important to shine light on some, some companies that are doing really good work who are dealing with all the things like, listen, again, we don't know what's going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen with, with all this stuff. We're trying to kind of decode it, demystify it a little bit. And so I think the companies that keep their, their heads down and they're, they're focused on just kind of what their mission is makes the most sense. And I know that that's the opportunity that a lot of the companies speaking with a lot of great investors have today to tell their stories. So thank you guys for being us. Liz Young, thank you for coming here and having this conversation with us. And Guy Adami, thanks a lot. So check out Market Call, people. Thanks.